Hey everyone, welcome to Indie Film Grit, a podcast about indie films and indie filmmakers. I am your host, Timothy Patrick, but you, you can call me Tim. In this episode, I'm joined by Randall Lobb. He's a writer, director, producer, and his new documentary is Power of Grayskull, the definitive history of He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. We talk about his unique approach to making documentaries, how he crowdfunded over $76,000 on Kickstarter, and 80s nostalgia. Let's get into it. And here we are with Randall Lobb. Randall, how are you, man? Thanks for being on the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Now, do you go by Tim or Timothy? Uh, you can call me Tim. I will. You can call me, <laughs> can call me Randall. Okay. Um, now, I'm really excited to talk with you. You made a new documentary uh, called Power of Grayskull, which is hmm. the definitive history of he-man and masters of the universe i Um, did i was part of that squadron that put that together yeah amazing work congratulations um this is right up my alley i can't wait to talk about it but before we get into that can you give us all a little background about yourself and how you got started in filmmaking i can now you'll uh we we've talked for people that are listening to this we've talked off air and if i go too long he knows he can hit the button that puts the electric charge right to my brain and will stop me in my tracks <laughs> but i do i do go into some detail here cuz it's actually a crazy story yeah give and it to us i want to hear it so i used to make commercials and i was a kid uh of pop culture but i was never uh into a lot of the things that we've done docs on in a way that you know, you would think from the docs, like I missed He-Man, I missed the Turtles. I'm an old guy. For me, it was Batman, Spider-Man, X-Men, right? I came up in that era. Mm-hmm. And we weren't really encouraged to have action figures back then. Like I, all I wanted was a Batman action figure. And the, the dads at the time, basically, you may as well have gone up to your dad and said, I'm a girl. Like that was sort of the sexist, you know, the whole vibe back then. So it was... Wow. It, yeah, it was dark. I'm from a small town in Ontario. So my interest in pop culture, I don't fault my dad. He's subject to the place he grew up and the time he grew up, right? He's just doing mm-hmm. what he learned. But if you were a kid who was into pop culture back then, in, in the community I was in, a very, very small town, it was all about finding it. You just couldn't see it anywhere. And so I kind of learned something that young people now don't have, but it's sort of a I would describe it as a hunger. Like if I liked David Bowie, I would have to go actively seeking David Bowie and really burn a lot of calories to find it. If I loved Spider-Man, I mean, I was literally looking everywhere for Spider-Man. And Mm -hmm. so that sense, that vibe was you would build, you know, sort of your worldview of whatever pop culture thing you liked from these very disparate, very separated pieces that are all over the place. And you had to really go out and find them and put them together in a way that you, you know, you didn't have an answer. You were building it yourself. So my Stan Lee or my Spider-Man kind of had nothing to do with the real story of those things. So I was always that kid. If I loved something, I would be putting it together in my mind. And I just got this sort of pattern brain together that didn't even hit me for many years. So... I became a a film student and was making commercials and all that. And unfortunately, I fell off my bike, hit my head, got amnesia, couldn't work in the business anymore. Yeah, it's ridiculous. And I didn't have near as bad a head injury as so many people have. It's just the way it it hit me, I couldn't go back into production. So I couldn't make commercials anymore. And I became a high school teacher, which sounds like you mean they let people with head injuries become high school teachers, but you can't make. (laughs) commercials <laughs> not exactly um you know you're used to going to school the bell rings it was very comforting for someone that had some issues around you know losing track of time and just simple post-concussion syndrome stuff i'm not a doctor i don't know mm-hmm. it just felt like being a high school teacher would be a good way for me to feel order and and 
moved back to my small town where I lived. I lived in the city for a while. So long story short, I was in the internet very early and saw how internet and education work together and started incorporating education into the internet in a way that at the time, again, I'm giving you the recipe for a way of thinking. I didn't realize what I was doing was sort of exploiting education using the technology tool of the internet. And if you extrapolate that across, what was actually happening was I was learning to exploit IP using technology, intellectual property, mm -hmm. using different technologies that were available and making whatever the subject matter was palatable to young people now called millennials. We didn't know that was what they were called maybe at the time, or I didn't think about them that way. But, you know, so in the nineties, here I am very early in the internet in the very early nineties, and I'm trying to get kids to read Macbeth or, you know, whatever, who has seen the wind or insert whatever book you want or, mm -hmm subject matter. I was an English teacher and I just started to combine these things. How do I appeal to these young people? How do I use technologies to get my messages across? How do I spin and twist and turn and exploit all these ideas to create attachments or handles for young people to be interested in them? And uh, all this whole time I was still writing and I was working in development and mostly just for friends who were in the industry. And I won't go through the giant details. I was trying to give you this way of randomly, I arrived at a place where as the culture starts to turn and all these giant IPs become critical, like if you remember when Iron Man came out, Marvel was not a sure thing. And oh, yeah. It was a real challenge. And that's right when we started the Turtle documentary, Turtle Power, the definitive history of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And right around that time, it was a really odd time in a way. There's the financial crisis and here I have this guaranteed job as a teacher, and I was doing all my film stuff on the side, working with who is you know, my partner here, Mark Hussey, who is the post-production genius. And because of his abilities with post-production, and I was a writer-director and l learning how to be a producer, we had this nice little you know, teamwork structure. We met Isaac Elliott Fisher, a very talented artist and production designer and construction well he's a he can build anything he's a carpenter but he's a construction designer he can think about a big project like a house and he happens to be a cinematographer mm. and he's yeah and he's much younger than us and he came to us and he knew the work we had been doing we'd been hiring him a few times basically just working for ngos it would be like can you come up with um a series of videos talking about eye surgeries that a charity was doing in remote parts of India. I think that group was called IRIS. And we did something for the United Nations High Commission on Refugees hmm. uh, about a refugee camp back uh, early 2010s. And so these sorts of jobs were what you would think you would do, but we knew we wanted to do something more in pop culture. We just, I don't think we were thinking about how do we do it, but Isaac approached us and said, he was passionate about the turtles and could we take a, you know these principles and apply them to the turtles. So we said no and yes at the same time together. Uh, my partner immediately, Mark, said yes. I said no and then I switched and said yes because here's the concept. Can we look at a big property? Can we come up with a unique spin? Can we sort of own the history and legacy of that property? That film took us you know, really six years to get out to the world, 2008 to 2014, and it was released. And immediately we started Conan the Barbarian. Mm -hmm. And Isaac had mentioned He-Man, and I said, no. I said, I didn't think that property was in a good place. And the sense of it for me at the time was it was a very special property. It, it came out of nowhere. Well, we, we know where it came out of. But it was a, an odd thing. And it was hard to say who's the creator, what's the through line, like you can with the turtles. You, right. know, you could say Kevin and Peter to a point, and then you know these different things happen that are very dramatic. They broke up their partnership, and there's lots to be said. He man, it didn't really feel the same way from my, you know, I'll be honest, ignorant understanding of it from the outside. But the the fluke of it is, we're making a documentary on Conan the Barbarian in 2014-15, and we kept finding these. He-Man things. There was a link between He-Man and Conan that was in paper between Mattel and Conan Properties. Mm -hmm. And you see that there had been some interaction. Second thing, you, you know, you're you interviewing 
William Stout. And he says, of course, yeah, I was working on Conan, blah, blah, blah. And then, of course, when I was doing He-Man, and we're like, oh, wow, there's a second one. And then the third one, we interviewed Gary Goddard, uh, again, for Conan. And he had built the Universal show. So there was a live Conan show, stunts, uh, sword fighting spectacular. Mm. And then he also, uh, he, of course, directed the He-Man movie. And when we had those three things come together, we just, Isaac and I just looked at each other and we said we might have to look into this. Right around that time, Rob McCallum, Robert McCallum, reached out uh, through Facebook and said, I guess he's from, uh, I, don't, I don't guess, he is from London, Ontario, a very small town, or a small city near our very small town. And he knew about us. He knew about Turtle Power. He was working in the space, pop culture documentaries. He had been doing Nintendo Quest and adding a collectible element to it. You know, we're going to go out and sort of acquire these things, and that's the spine of the show. And he had a model, and he sent a message to Isaac. He said, I'm going to do a He-Man documentary. And Isaac called me in a panic and said, we better hurry if we're going to do this, (laughs) or do we partner up? And so we reached out to him. We had a couple of conversations, and it seemed like we were like-minded in how to approach, but more to the point, two of us approaching separately is not good. It's mm-hmm. it's not a good strategy. Ironically, the toys that made us uh, followed us uh, about a year into He-Man. You know what I mean? They mm-hmm. Right as we're done, we are getting messages from people we'd interviewed. I won't say who. It doesn't matter. But they were saying, are, is this you? Like, are you these guys? No, no, it wasn't us. And we found out about toys that made us. And honestly – it was concerning because you don't want, you know, this is a very bigger, a very bigger, very much a bigger company. I think they were originally called Comedy Dynamics and hmm. they sold, in effect, sort of the same business model we were doing to Netflix. And so we thought, okay, we, we really have to try and get this movie made. Um, that's why this idea of teaming up versus competing in a space became appealing. And although, you know, we don't necessarily always in a partnership like that, we don't always have the exact same ideas. It's a lot that you can learn from different people. So we learned from Rob and I think Rob maybe learned from us too. So it's not my place to say, but having said that, the four of us banded together to make this doc and the ideas that I just gave you, those are very much the case. We need to do something different. We need to burn calories and find interesting connections and patterns. Mm-hmm. And we pile those all together and we sort of exploit the IP, show a side of the IP that maybe hadn't been seen. That's a long story. Yeah, no, it's a good one. And leads us right <laughs> into the, the film itself. Um, that's fascinating that you had amnesia. Did, I did. Did any of, Does that go away or did any of that those memories come back. So there are two kinds of amnesia, retrograde and anterograde. And I repeat, I am not a doctor and everybody's own injuries are their own. For me, uh, I don't have, I think I probably have lost about a year, but you don't know. You know what I mean? Yeah. I can remember stuff. I don't know if it's from that time period or from before. I know it's not from after because I think I pretty much remember what happened after, but there's a, a certain period I lost. And then what you remember, you remember because you forgot. Like you remember the stress of it. I remember not knowing stuff. And mm. yeah, yeah, it's very strange. It, it's the most disconcerting uh, feeling. Yeah. Yeah. You realize, you realize that you are your brain, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Oh, geez. What a, yeah, you're what not a... something separate. Yeah, you have a, well, you yourself have a complicated story, and the He-Man is is a very complicated story, and I got to say hats off to you and your team, because you were able to uh, put all the pieces in place in a very digestible uh, film. Um, oh, that's that's nice to hear, because it is unbelievable how much material you gather for these. Oh, yeah. I mean, you could have made it a three-hour film if you wanted to, I'm sure. Um, there's just... I think our first cut was five hours. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I think so. Wow. And see the fans out there would love to see all that as well. You know, <laughs> we made it available. It's out there. Oh, wow. And it's... if it's not out there now, it will be, uh, we made some arrangements with different companies to 
try and get some of that material out there. And people who backed us on Kickstarter mm-hmm. had access to quite a bit of it as well. So just to answer your question about it, that you that you didn't ask, <laughs> the question I hear you saying is, how do you decide what to keep or what not to keep? Or, mm-hmm. or how do you deal with so much information? With these big properties, you know you're going to make something else, right? You're going to make a movie, and then you have to have this you know, this extraneous or added or however you want to say it, deeper dive material, it has to be made available. Fans need to see it and we don't want to waste it because so much of it, you're just biting the inside of your mouth. I don't want to cut that, but I don't have any choice. Mm -hmm. And I will say the toys that made us is great. I think it's, it's just another example of sort of the collector uh, nostalgia um, community coming to light to people that don't yeah. don't know about it um but you know i think they were episodic and they kind of you know they just kind of breezed over it even though they oh. shared a lot of information but um it's nice to have a solid what is it 95 minute film about it well that's yeah that's the man the mandate is normally when you start talking to distributors they want to see an 85 to 95 minute cut and sometimes they don't even want to see that much. Mm-hmm. But fans, of course, want to see, they want, what is it called, Camp Crystal Lake, the Friday the 13th documentary is about seven hours or something. Oh, wow. So, yeah, there's there's definitely a split between what the deep fans want, what an average documentary watcher would like, and what distributors want. Mm-hmm. So we made about a 90, about a 95-minute cut, I think, and we did make a lot of decisions. We did have to really consider how to turn it into a story and a story that makes it feel like we didn't leave so much on the cutting room floor. And I, I don't fault the teams that made the toys that made us. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not going to have an ax to grind. It, it is concerning when you know that they're following you and, and using some of the same source materials to get the interviewers or interviewees. And we bumped into the filmmakers a couple times and, I think it was hard for them to boil it down to half an hour. And very much it's from a position that the owner of that company is a collector. He's a toy fan. So Mm. I'm sure he was gritting his teeth trying to keep it in a certain size of episode. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I mean, with you, it was uh, the whole project was He-Man. They do Barbie. They do this and that. So they have other avenues. Mm -hmm. But it seems like it was all sort of on the line for you. You had to make it good. You had to make it better. There's a way, yeah, there's a way that we approach these, and I'm, I'm not going to go into enormous detail because bad enough that I told you my whole life story pretty much. <laughs> I didn't talk about kindergarten. I do have some amazing kindergarten adventures. Okay. Uh, that's a separate podcast. <laughs> but you have, you have an approach that you have to take that we kind of summarize in a certain way. And I can, I can tell you it's a sentence. I can read you the sentence. If you see a movie... That's a documentary that feels like this has happened. It's probably ours or people who looked at it and tried to do something similar. But basically, we're adding meaning by curating, defining, highlighting, exploiting, and elevating. Mm. So our mandate is we have to curate the best pieces. We have to find what are the things that either uh, resonate most with fans, resonate most with general audiences, or excite people in general, right? It could be you meet someone who's famous and you see them talk about something they love. It's more valuable than if you meet, you know, my uncle Jim and Jim tells you what he loves. You're like, oh, Jim's a great guy, but he's not famous. So you're just making choices, careful curation. And then you have to define terms. Like people who watch this, my wife's early comment, it's true. She says she didn't know about toy manufacturing. So even explaining, you know, tooling or whatever, or mm-hmm. licensing. She didn't even know what those terms were. And my bad for assuming most people know about the basic edges of those things. So again, you're defining, and even then we didn't get it right. Highlighting, you need to put a spotlight on someone or something that is maybe unknown or maybe unusual. Or if you remember Mark, Mike Barbato talking about snout spout, I thought that was really exciting to be in the room and hear him talking about it with so much excitement. So we wanted to highlight some of that. That got put into the uh, bonus features later. And you know what I mean? I can talk about exploiting. You just want to 
get as much as you can from that IP and put it out there and put it to service for you. Like if you miss something, someone will tell you on the turtle dock, you didn't interview this voice actor. You know, you didn't get that toy designer. And it's true. You can't always get all the pieces. Mm -hmm. And lastly, you want to take the thing that you're doing the documentary on and make it awesome. Show it to be awesome and bring it up. Too many times people think pop culture is dumb. Again, I go back to my uncle's watching me read comics and I come from an agricultural background and, you know, why don't you learn how to fix cars or trucks? Well, I'm busy reading Spider-Man. You know, mm -hmm. it's, we want to take those things that we do docs on and elevate them and make them stand out and look awesome. Yeah. And I love that, you know, with your, your company, uh, definitive films, you've kind of built your own nostalgic niche of documentaries. Like you, you mentioned the, the uh, Turtle Power documentary. So you, you kind of, you follow this formula with all your films and it, it, it builds your brand and it's in your brand, definitive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the whole thing, <laughs> I'm not a huge fan of all the things we do. Like, I like the things we do. I love the people that we meet, but I don't come at it with um, a checklist. Like a fan, you can't help it. Mm -hmm. Like you would say, Oh, you got to have this, or you got to have that, or you got to have this. You know, you, you get a fan think, uh, and that fan think isn't always the best and most relatable movie. So we have to come at these things a little differently. We have to be more strategic. And so that strategy, that thinking is where the definitive came from. Hmm. If, you, if you're defining something and you're building from a thesis or from, you know, everything that I do is from a, a, a plan or a design. I'm a very careful person in that regard. I don't tend to behave too um, much from passion or I don't even trust it if I do, you know, like I love my wife and kids, but I don't necessarily love a lot of things that could get me in trouble, if you know what I'm getting mm -hmm. at. Like, so that, that idea of being definitive is coming from a place where you're defining terms and things mm -hmm. that are definitive are standouts in the space so, you know, we approached it this very planned, structured way. And by the way, that came from doing the documentaries. It didn't come first. Hmm. We did the turtle doc. It took a long time. It taught us a lot. And that's where all of these structures were implemented. And then the idea that it becomes transposable to a new franchise, like you say, it makes sense now. But at the time, it was something that we had to learn as we as we made that first movie. Hmm. Now let's talk about Kickstarter because what you guys were able to pull off is quite impressive. I believe you had over a thousand backers and you raised over seventy six thousand mm -hmm. dollars, and you were only asking for twenty five thousand. That's true. So I'm not. Uh, this is Rob McCallum's. Uh, I wouldn't say his world. That's not very fair. His world is he makes documentaries as well. But this was his more more his expertise. Mm -hmm. What we knew is making these documentaries is like building a house. And I mean, for real, the, the, the prices is the way of thinking about it. It's very costly and it costs as much as a big house in a nice part of town. So when you make a movie like this, and you don't have a distributor, you're spending. It's all out and no in. Mm. And Rob Rob did some good work on sort of fan outreach or building community around a prior project with Nintendo Quest. And he had an answer for how to implement Kickstarter into our workflow. And we knew how to create certain kinds of things that fit into that workflow. So you might notice we had a pretty good video for example for that kickstarter if you looked at it we, it yeah. was pretty high end it looked great we built a set we shot some cool stuff you know there's a crane in there there's beautiful shots it really looked good and that makes you stand out and i think that contributed to the success people thought oh these guys aren't kidding around you know they they're really going to do this right oh that's the feeling that we were hoping that they had mm -hmm. the fact that there's so much pent-up enthusiasm for he-man that's not about us you you see people want something. They want whatever they can get out of this franchise. They want to keep the good feelings going. So we were lucky that they cared enough to come and play in our little space 
and we had some nice material to show. I found it difficult to think about the people's expectations at times. Like I, I'm a filmmaker, so I'm making a movie, but they love this franchise in a way that I can't always match. So mm -hmm. somebody, somebody somewhere is angry at me right now. <laughs> we mm -hmm. for sure missed something they love. And we for sure, you know, all our promises we met, but did we meet the exact promise that you expected? I just don't know. You know what I mean? There's, yeah. well, there's, I think both there's the, no uh, way to be sure. Both, both the property that you're, you're talking about in the film and the lack of anything out there other than toys that made us. I mean, I, I told you, I'm, I've been a lifelong fan of Masters. Yeah. And I've probably seen every YouTube video that even comes close to a documentary, you know. And um, they're great. And in my brain, I kind of put them all together. And, um, you know, it made my own documentary based on all those things. Um, but that, that has me asking, there's so much out there as far as, like, old interviews with uh, Lou Scheimer or you know, some of the animators, um, that I've seen on YouTube. Um, I, I thought it was interesting that you didn't really take from that. Um, it seems like all your interviews were done in house. They were your interviews mm -hmm. and they were mm -hmm. new and fresh. How did you decide to do that? So part of the thing you have to think about when you're making a movie like this is it's not about us. So, we get out of the way and want to show the franchise to be amazing, right? So we don't show ourselves. We don't, you know, we're not like characters in the documentary or anything like that. But what we do is approach it a little differently than other people. So one of the things that's very important, you know, if we're not going to be in it to sort of mandate the flow is we need to have better control over what is discussed in the interviews and how the people are approached. So, again, I don't want to go into giant detail, but we very much have a way that we interview people that is not normal or, let's say, not um, the easiest and most common way to interview people. So if we sit down and look at interviews that are on YouTube with Lou Scheimer, they're good. Lou Scheimer is saying things. And I think we had uh, Erica Scheimer gave us access to some s small pieces that we put together into the doc. Mm -hmm. But when I sit down with someone, I come at it from a very different place and my strategies, if you want to call them that, get different results. And we can see the difference. Doesn't mean everybody can at home. And again, remember, it's not about us, but we need to have our point of view or the doc isn't, it isn't the doc that we want to make. So mm -hmm. you really have to go to the people, you have to sit down and you have to do the work right there in front of the camera. Because that's what makes the interviews better. That's what makes the movie work. Mm -hmm. If you take a bunch of stuff and rip reel it together, you know, to me, that's less a value add and more of a repackage. Right. Yeah. Good point. Now, does that mean you kind of had the flow written out before you shot the interviews? Because often in documentaries, people don't find the story thread until editing. Yeah, well, that's right. And the answer is no. I come in from a thesis perspective. Mm -hmm. um, so I know what the thesis is. I know what the edges are. I think I, got, I come in from a wider place and I build concentric rings. I have these benchmarks coming in closer and closer. So if I was talking about He-Man, maybe I don't start by talking about He-Man. Maybe I talk about the early 80s or the late 70s. And that's why you have Mark Ellis talking about the $6 million man or licensing. And, mm -hmm. and people... You know, you kind of come into the subject matter and you pick up a lot of material that you're going to need. Um, Rob's approach, he's coming in 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 the about, I don't know, probably 90, maybe 75 percent of the interviews. It's Rob and I. And I'll start by coming in wide. And then at a certain point, we're going to get into specifics. And that's more like, um, you know. Rob wants to dig into something about the filmation show. You know what I mean? And he knows way more about that than I do. And mm -hmm. he can speak to those issues that he wants to bring out of his own viewership of the show. So you right in the middle of that ring of concentric circles. But the way I'm coming in from that outside, we pick up a lot of stuff 
that then, as you say, becomes emergent later in the doc. Like you might interview um, J. Michael Straczynski and Barbara Hambly, and they both talk about uh, children being moved to emulate, that they have to be careful what they show He-Man do because children will copy what they see. Mm-hmm. And I could have planned in advance, you know, we're going to talk about the social me- social message at the end of the doc, but it's better when it comes out like that, right? Right. These these themes or ideas we know we're going to build on. And so the first cut of the film, the one that is sort of uh, this five-hour piece, Isaac builds that, and he sat beside me and did all the interviews, or he sat with Rob, there are a few that I wasn't there for, and he was part of the interview process. So he knows what the thesis is. He knows what becomes emergent. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. yeah, and you guys were able to pull off some... Uh interviews that I haven't really seen before, mm-hmm. um, specifically from the uh, the feature film He-Man movie. Um, you got Dolph Lundgren and Frank Langella. Langella, right? yeah. yeah. Um, now, I'm, I'm just curious, and you don't have to answer this, but is that where part of the budget comes in to pay these big guys that... You can't pay for interviews. You can't. That's, no, you can't. Hmm. Now, when I say you can't pay for interviews... If you, this doesn't necessarily, someone would disagree. Someone else would say, oh yeah, you can. And we do. Hmm. Here's why I can't. If I pay you to be in my documentary, you're now a representative of me. And if you say something as my representative, I'm actionable for that. Either editorially from the idea of the perspective that is being espoused in the, in the show, you know what I mean? In the movie, Mm -hmm. or even just in the sense of, are you sort of just acting as a mouthpiece for a belief that I have that I'm right. jamming into this film? So, Interesting. Yeah, that's my strong belief, and I think Isaac and Mark and, and, and I would think Rob as well. Our belief is these people have to want to tell the story. They have to be a participant from a place that is real. Hmm. If somebody said to me, you know, I need help, getting to the interview or, you know, you know, that's different. Like if they said, Hey, uh, can you come and pick me up and drive me to the interview or whatever? Like we can build some logistical, whatever you need, uh, assets. We can build some on reps to make it easier for you. Mm-hmm. Like we went to Franklin Jella. We went to Dolph Lundgren. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Yeah. And I uh, imagine um, all these people, whether it's from the cartoon or from Mattel or from the movie, they don't all live in the same area, so you're traveling a lot. Correct. And that's what you do. You make it easy for them with logistics, and then they can agree. If if you pay someone, I don't think you're making a documentary. I think you're building some kind of you know platform for your own point of view. Mm-hmm. If somebody has ever said to me in the past, I need to be paid for this interview, they are not in the documentary. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. Now, to speak about Frank Langell, it's super ironic that you asked that question right now. I just got an email from the guy who made it possible for us to get Dolph Lundgren and Frank Langella because he must be psychic. Hmm. And it's Ad- it's Adam F. Goldberg from the Goldbergs, oh, the creator wow. of the Goldbergs. Interesting. Yeah, Adam, um, turns out he's a the world's biggest fan of mm-hmm. all the things you love and all the things that I love and far more intense than me or anyone that I know, except maybe Teddy Biaselli at Netflix, who is a giant fan and a key part of the curatorship that Netflix is doing these days. But what you see in Adam is a guy who will reach out to people in the Kickstarter fan film community. And he will say, you know, can I help? Can I be uh, involved in some way? Wow. And sometimes he'll, put some kickstart money in, you know, not like what people might think. Oh, did Adam's Adam Goldberg give you $10,000? No. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't want $10,000 from him. Um, I want to hear his opinions and you know what I mean? Like yeah. he likes the material and he cares and I take his notes and I think about how I'm going to implement them in, in the film and make something that he cares about. He's obviously smart and knows the business and he's a very committed fan. So we had that kind of relationship, and at one point he said, wouldn't it be great if you could get Dolph Lundgren and Frank Langella? And I said, it would be amazing. And he helped me make those connections. So wow. he's 
very important in making this movie. Yeah, you yeah. know, um, his interest in action figures and all things 80s uh, actually overflows um, into the world that I made a documentary about, which is it's a, a short film called Mastercasters, and it's about um, bootleg toy artists. And he's reached out to them, and he's had their their toys actually featured in the film multiple times. And uh, one of the main artists in the scene, the Super Suck Lord, was actually had a cameo on the show. So I totally, is, I totally get it. He's great. That is so exactly what he would do, wouldn't mm-hmm. he? Yeah. He's not kidding around. Like, he's the kind of fan. He reached out to me. Mm-hmm. I didn't even know. Like, I knew about the show, but I didn't even know that that kind of thing could happen. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? <laughs> Yeah, hey, I'm Adam, I'm Adam F. Goldberg, not the guy from Saving Private Ryan. You know, <laughs> let me know if you want to talk sometime. I love the idea of the documentary and love Turtles. And so, you know, we sort of hit it off. And it's a fluke that he sent an email today. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> By the way, I can read what he said. I'm having a happy summer. There you go. <laughs> you heard it here first. Oh, that's great. Um I, w- I want to talk about your, um, your, uh, you know, the the graphics, sort of the graphic cutaways in between interviews and whatnot. They're they're really well done and uh, informative, and it just even if you're not able to uh, maybe read the whole document or anything, you know it's real, and you know that you went to the time to get all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, is that um, is that your editor putting together? Because they look really slick. So the first thing I'll say is we have two things w- with our little business, our little company, that a lot of people would wish they could have. And the first thing is Isaac Elliott Fisher is obsessed with doing everything practical as much as possible. So when you see you know, the opening of the film and there's a tracking shot going past action figures in an 80s kitchen and then a TV and all the toys set up, you know, mm-hmm. that whole piece. Oh, yeah. Isaac built that Wonder Bread bag that's there. Like, that's a, that's a prop that he created to look 80s. Wow. Yeah, those action figures are set up in somebody's actual house that has a, a kind of an 80, 70s, 80s vibe in her house, and she let us in. And Isaac dressed that whole thing up. So we're very... Uh, much behind this like when he says he wants to build a 16 foot sewer chute for turtles and everybody thinks it's you know computer generated Mm -hmm. that's that's what we want so that's that one side so you see a lot of the transitional stuff or the action figure turns or even the opening credit sequence the you know the he-man coming together in the tank all that kind of stuff yeah that was really interesting yeah it's fun trying to figure out how you guys pulled that off is it in water it, it's it's in water. It mm. is. Very cool. So we're always going off a thesis. So I'll say a thesis, we should do this, and then Isaac will think, well, how can we do this practically? On the other side, indeed, you're right. It's the editor, Mark Cussey. He's in charge of all the post-production, and he brings in his brother, Manny, and uh, Manny Hussey, and they, or often Mark by himself, will sit down and think about, how does this feel? And again, we'll often go from a discussion. So... I'll say something thesis to Mark, like, it'd be interesting if we saw how this was sort of formed out of an ether, because all these people's ideas came together. So all these ideas come together in like a collective unconsciousness, and all the things kind of weave together, and all our different thoughts from all these different creators. Mm -hmm. So he creates that world in graphics, and you see sort of this possibility ethereal universe filled with he-man pieces those are all the connected minds of all the people who helped contribute helped contribute (laughs) who helped create their contributions are sort of shown in this metaphor space and then what he'll do is extrapolate there'll be colors that fit that and then there'll be a different way of treating graphics to keep that idea alive or there may be some nostalgic way can we show old tvs or whatever so you know what i mean we get these metaphors models and thesis statements and then mark kind of meditates and i'm not even joking he meditates what is the way to do that and i'm glad you like it because i love it i think if we didn't have that if we didn't have him 
And we, if we didn't have Isaac's, I would say it's a ruthless, I was going to say it a different way. I was going to swear. I caught myself. <laughs> uh, ruthless drive to make things physical. Can we do it physically? And then no. Okay, now Mark comes in. But all these things have to feel there's a unity behind them based on these metaphors and theses. Oh, my God, I can't believe I'm doing this. You're going to cut a lot of this out. No, this Oof. is all golden. All of it. <laughs> That's, oh, I hope you're right. Now, we, we mentioned how complicated uh, the history of He-Man and the lore of He-Man is. I mean, you got toys, mini comics, eventually real comics, the mm -hmm. cartoon, the film, then the She-Ra spinoff and that toy line and, you know, the big gym and all that stuff. Um I find it refreshing, not only how you laid it out, but in, in some YouTube videos I've seen or whatnot, they try and pin people against each other, almost oh, like, man. no, I created He-Man. No, it's, I created He-Man. It's a real problem, Tim. It is. It, yeah. Listen. But you kept that, it positive, and it was yes. all just kind of moving forward, and you didn't get into the muck. No. It doesn't help anybody. It doesn't elevate. Hmm. Right, that's the but elevate part. Here's the reality. We reached out to somebody who didn't want to be in the documentary, right? Mm -hmm. And that person doesn't have to be in the documentary. That's fine. If we talked about why he or she didn't want to be in the documentary, that's not the story. That's not what people care about, right? Mm -hmm. if, if we had someone come in and they said, I did this, and we shot with somebody else who said, no, no, I did that, if we come in and pick a point, like we're going to make person A look good and make person B look bad, we pick a way to, uh, let's say, stage so that it looks like they're arguing back and forth. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Sure. If we do that, we can generate some false drama. Yeah. We can make it look like there's a battle there. I'm and guilty maybe, of that myself in, in my doc. Uh, that's yeah. why I found yours refreshing. I felt like I had to have that drama in there, and you just bypassed it completely. Well, because I believe in, in the, I don't, I'm trying to be nice. I don't want to slam the idea of building drama because you just told me you did it. But I yeah, will say that. But I prefer your way, actually. I don't like the drama. I never do. Mm -hmm. I don't like the idea that we create false stakes that we think are real stakes and we ignore real stakes. So mm -hmm. the, here are the real stakes. People are trying to make this action figure to make lots of money and get kids to buy it. That's true, right? It's an exercise. It's a crass commercial exercise. Mm -hmm. So those are real stakes. There's shareholders. There's business. There's all this stuff. That's all there. There are other stakes later. Um, we're trying to make a show, and here's the show, and it's coming out. And the government says you have to do this, and there's people who say you have to do that, and then you can't show violence. You know what I mean? There's all these little stakes that go on throughout. Mm -hmm. And to build stakes on top of those, to me, feels like a reality show. It, does, it doesn't yeah. feel like you're letting this stuff be its own thing. You're not holding up the IP, the franchise, and saying, on its own, this is interesting. On its own, this generates all the little mini stakes and human dramas and character interactions that you need. You just have to present them. Mm -hmm. The way I say it is this. If you uh, will go on YouTube and watch somebody unbox a toy that you won't get, and I'm not saying you do do that, but if you're the kind of person that's seen that or you have kids that do that, that tells you how powerful that IP is, mm -hmm. right? Sure. So you don't have to have a whole lot more. Just talk about it. Mm -hmm. Let it be itself. And the building of um, a false narrative or an exaggerated narrative around that to create some sort of viewer entry point, to me, is misguided. And again, I don't want to... I know exactly why you did it. And I've had the same discussions in the editing room. Mm -hmm. And we've just come down on saying we just aren't going to do it. And this all started way back on the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles documentary, when I said, I'm not going to tell the story of why Kevin and Peter split up. Mm. And a lot of people said, well, that's the weak spot with the documentary. Well, my answer is, what is the documentary really about? Mm. It's about a happy accident. So why don't we talk about that? 
let's talk about the turtles. Let's talk about the fans. Let's talk about, you know, what are the elements that people love? And let's keep that nice feeling going. If we want bad stuff, there's always CNN. Right. And by the way, I am not in the CNN slamming business. You know how that, <laughs> that's I a trope. Yeah. I'm not part of the trope. I'm just saying we can always turn on the news and there's lots of crap. Mm-hmm. I don't want to, I don't want to see it inside yeah. my docs. Yeah. And with He-Man, there's just so much information and stories out there that you, you don't even need to sprinkle in that stuff. I'm sure there's, there's more than enough just to keep it positive and keep it rolling. So it's just, I, I applaud you feel- and I'm, I'm, I'm going to, Take notes. I'm taking notes in my head right now for my my next documentary. I'm not going to go the cheap way. I'm, I'm going to try and elevate it like like you do. I think you'll like it better because what it it'll force you to think about what you're doing a little bit differently, right? Yeah. Trust the material, right? Trust that IP. We're working on an IP right now. I, I'm not. I think I'm allowed. Well, on August 30th, our next movie comes out. And with, this is not with Rob. Rob's next movie is about action figures specifically. He's gone in a direction where he's digging deeper into the action figures. Mm. But we ended up working on Dark Crystal. Oh, nice. And Yeah, and that's coming out. I'm not allowed to say much about it. But August 30th, there will be Dark Crystal on Netflix. And some of that Dark Crystal presentation will be something to do with what we do. And I will say this. When you... Just show the things that are happening with an IP, right? Either mm-hmm. behind the scenes or in the history of it, like somebody telling a story about how this became what it is. That's inherently interesting. We like to know how these things happen. And you have a lot of side issues, right? Like time period. And there's just so much that comes into play. Mm-hmm. People, who, people who like He-Man like the 80s. They remember being kids in the 80s. So you already have a nice feeling around it. So you just have to get them there. Let's make it easy for you to have that nice feeling. Wow. That's fantastic. Um, And the good news is uh, it's coming out. And if people listening to this, the day that this podcast is posted, August 13th, um, you can get it on digital and DVD. Is that correct? Yeah, there's <laughs> – see me pause. I don't know the exact date. Okay. So here's the thing. Modern uh, – you're into um, – this is a filmmaking podcast, right? Correct. So you know you don't just sell your movie and then you're done. Mm-hmm. You sell some rights over here and some rights over there and some rights over here and some rights over there. So we – Placed it on Netflix. We were very happy and lucky to get it on Netflix. Wow. And it, and it streamed. And now it's coming to physical media. And people often say in the business, well, physical media is dead. Yeah, but there's lots of collectors. Lots of collectors want physical media. So you need to satisfy. That's right. Especially Those in this collect- genre with, with the action yes. figures. That's right. So then you have to go and find someone to help you get through to get physical media. And then you want that right available um, maybe at a time that doesn't compete with your streaming. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. things are phased and all these different rights are structured to come out at different times. And I don't even know what they all are. And that's potentially embarrassing or potentially <laughs> tells you how complicated Oh, yeah. distribution is now with turtles we sold it to paramount they did all this stuff that was it they mm. own it but this he-man doc we really had to split stuff out and so high octane pictures has come in to handle the physical rights there's some stuff that universal is doing um and that has to do with added value to a big box set and you know what i mean mm-hmm. potentially you know potentially you'll see something in the next month i would think based on all the magic numbers that I see in front of me right now. Yeah, and it's a it's a great time for this to be coming out. I mean, Super 7, which is in your film, has kind of carried the torch of, of Masters the last few years. But anybody who's deep in the collecting and, and all that knows that uh, Mattel is launching right now uh, new 
kind of vintage style uh, master's lines. So they're taking the helm back and it, it never really went anywhere and it's just getting stronger. So I think people I are going to so. eat this up. And um, I, I mean, I did. I loved every minute of it. I think what you see happening right now is Mattel has been through some stuff. Anyone who's in the toy space knows that Mattel has been a, a troubled company over the years. Some stuff hasn't worked out as intended, potentially. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, He-Man is one of their great longtime franchise uh, I'll say a victory. I think they had a pretty good victory with it. It didn't go great towards the end. And Brian at Super 7 has carried it around as sort of a, a curator himself. And I'm sure Netflix, whoops, I'm sure that Mattel looked at that and Netflix put out She-Ra and Sony's been trying to reboot He-Man and mm -hmm. Universal's done some He-Man stuff. And Mattel's probably saying, man, it'd be great to bring it back home and probably... New management has come in a couple times since we were doing the dock and probably trying to find a way to build some kind of new platform. You know, you've seen what they've done with Barbie. It's pretty interesting. The Margot Robbie uh, oh, yeah. film and they have the David Bowie uh, Ziggy Barbie. That's pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you saw that. Yeah, anyway, it just seems seems to me like they're starting to turn around and go, all right, how do we service how do we service the people that are waiting and have been waiting forever? And how about this? Kids. Remember right. them? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. For sure. And that's what's interesting. You know, I'm in my early 40s. And uh, it's interesting to see younger kids who maybe grew up on the or Power Rangers or something like that, Pokemon, who discover Masters when they're an adult and they start collecting. So I'm just waiting for... Now that the technology's there, I'm, I'm waiting for the the film that harkens back to uh, He-Man, the cartoon and the toy line. I mean, uh, you know, the Dolph Lundgren, that's a cult classic in its own right, but I remember seeing it and uh, it didn't quite scratch the itch. So I hope no. they're smart enough to come out now, you know, and have Orko and, and have Man-at-Arms with a mustache or whatnot. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. Did you see that, um, what's it called, Primal DC Primal Age? Oh, yeah, that, yeah, definitely. That, to me, that should have told somebody, oh, kids like that. Like that. Everybody knows what that is. You look at it, you know what it is, mm -hmm. right? You see what's happening there. Why wouldn't you go back to the original, right? Yeah, and they just that, uh, recently did another sort of crossover with uh, the wrestling world where yeah, exactly. they're, they're using weapons and stuff from the he-man vintage line and built in that kind of same body you know so a lot of mashups happening and uh i always find that interesting because that is the basis of the bootleg toy world which i've been immersed in um but it's good to see the 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 big companies taking note and yeah oh man crossing well, over fandom really you play a little game with yourself you go google dc primal age bat cave savage world playset oh yeah <laughs> and you'll say hmm where have i seen that before right 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 it's graceful right and that idea again you think mattel must be saying okay wait a minute oh yeah Some, somebody's eating our lunch and i just love how it's so everything's built on everything like in your movie you even touch on Castle Grayskull was somewhat inspired by the Guns of Navarone playset. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, it just keeps going and going. And I mean, for for my money, the Castle Grayskull is is the best playset around. But <laughs> I'm a super nerd, listen, so <laughs> listen. I here's how I know you're right. Um, do you remember when Super Seven started playing around with putting another one out? Mm-hmm. And. Have you ever been at a show where somebody from Columbia came and bought one for X number of thousands of dollars? Uh, no. A real one? Yeah. I to mean, me, I, I know I, they, they're releasing a Snake Mountain soon through Super 7. Yes. Um, I to me, to see the economy that's risen up around Grayskull, hmm. it's, it's crazy. Mm -hmm. Like, why wouldn't you put it out? Yeah. The idea of play sets is 
again, I'm not a big toy guy. I'm a filmmaker. But from my outside perspective, it's so obvious that kids want or need, how about, things to play with that are physical. Mm -hmm. Right? You need that haptic kind of tactile toy. You need things, physical things, manipulables. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm a, I'm a big fan of that. If I, if my kids were little, they'd have all that stuff now because, you know, there's only so much you want to see a kid pawing an iPad before you want to give them a sharp stick and tell them to run around outside and stab something. Or That probably doesn't come out. That doesn't sound good when I say it like that. No, I, I know what you're saying. And it yeah. is interesting that kids won't play with toys, but they'll watch those unboxing videos like you're talking about. Yeah. It's uh, everything is is online on an iPad. It's it's definitely different than what what I had. But uh, yeah, and I, I'm not trying to be old school. I'm just saying this: give kids a fun playset, and they'll stick their imaginations in it. Mm-hmm. Right. So that that idea is definitely ripe. I'm well, we're on a on a wavelength now on a soapbox. Yeah. Well, I mean, I still have my original He-Man toys from the '80s. Uh, they're in my closet right now. I've carried them through. I don't know how many moves. But I got Grayskull, Snake Mountain, um, and I'll probably never let it go. And I remember when the collecting was not a thing. You know, everything, Star Wars kind of died down. He-Man died down. You'd see him at flea markets for a dollar. But Mm -hmm. with all this new resurgence, even those original figures, they're shooting up like crazy. It's a heck of an investment. And um, I really love talking with you today, Randall. Um, This was fantastic. Um, is, is there any, uh, any final words you want to say to any filmmakers out there or any, anything like that? You can give us a little tip. I mean, yeah, you, I, I give you, I'll give you what I think is a tip. Okay. Band together, <laughs> band together. Uh, after I saw that toys that made us was out there, I reached out to them and they reached out to us. I won't say that we were able to find a way to connect because we haven't yet, but you want to band together. When Rob reached out to us, he kind of played us a little bit, but we banded together. We're doing a Shenmue documentary with a Shenmue fan. If people like you meet up with other people like you, uh, you can do a lot more. That force multiplier is critical. And a lot of people make these movies thinking, I'm by myself and I have to figure out how to do this. Or you could meet someone who knows how to do the stuff you don't. So mm-hmm. it seems obvious. It seems simplistic. But this idea of forming a community around your interests, you know, we would do it if we were, I don't know, playing Dungeons and Dragons. We have to get the band together to go on stage. You need a drummer. You know, mm-hmm. that that vibe to me sometimes gets set on the back burner when you're thinking about a film company. You know, you think about the O tour and you don't remember, Oh yeah, we need everybody. Everybody has to do their job for this to work. Great advice. And, uh, a wonderful film you've made. I look forward to seeing the, uh, the dark crystal, um, project that you're uh, working on. I actually have a dark crystal tattoo on my arm. So are you kidding me? Once again, right up my alley. What did you Um, get? Oh, I got sort of an interpretation on some of the Brian Froud artwork, the, concentric circles and and that sort of thing that you find just what you're talking about. yeah so i'll be excited to see that and um thanks so much this was uh this was nothing but a joy for me so i i wish you continued success and thanks for you know inspiring some of these filmmakers that are listening to the podcast well thank you and i hope that your editing is able to make me sound (laughs) at least partially coherent very little ed- editing is going to happen here. <laughs> oh, no. Well, uh, apologies to everyone. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Randall. Uh, thanks so much, man. You take care. Thank you. Take care. Well, that's that. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Indie Film Grit podcast. Feel free to go to our website and check out the show notes, IndieFilmGrit.com. Follow us on Twitter at IndieFilmGrit. And if you enjoyed this episode, give us a rating on iTunes. Well, I should really wrap this up, but before I go, let me ask you something. Do you have the courage, the passion, and the perseverance to make indie films? 
Do you have enough indie film grit?